The London Welsh Centre has always been the cultural home of Wales and the English capital. As we navigate these strange times, we thought we would shift our attention momentarily to escape and focus on the imagery and positivity of a great Welsh icon on this, his international day. Over the next 30 minutes, you'll hear members of the London Welsh Centre reciting two of Dylan's most notable works and hear from a special guest on what the wordsmith means to her. So sit back, close your eyes and love the words as we celebrate the great Dylan Thomas. Joyo. Now as I was young and easy under the apple boughs about the lilting house and happy as the grass was green the night above the dingle starry. Time, let me hail and climb golden in the heydays of his eyes. And honoured among wagons, I was prince of the apple tongues. And once below a time, I lordly had the trees and leaves trail with daisies and barley down the rivers of the windfall light. And as I was green and carefree, Famous among the barns about the happy yard, and singing as the farm was home, in the sun that is young once only, time let me play and be, golden in the mercy of his means. And green and golden, I was huntsman and herdsman. The calves sang to my horn, the foxes on the hills barked clear and cold, and the Sabbath rang slowly in the pebbles of the holy streams. All the sun long it was running. It was lovely. The hayfields high as the house. The tunes from the chimneys. It was air. And playing. Lovely and watery. And fire green as grass. And nightly under the simple stars. As I rode to sleep, the owls were burying the farm away. All the moon long I heard, blissed among stables, the night jars flying with ricks and horses flashing into the dark. And then to awake, and the farm like a wanderer white with the dew come back, the cock on his shoulder. It was all shining. It was Adam and Maiden. The sky gathered again and the sun grew round that very day. So it must have been after the birth of the simple light in the first spinning place. The spellbound horses walking warm out of the whinnying green stable onto the fields of praise. And honoured among foxes and pheasants by the gay house, under the new-made clouds and happy as the heart was long, in the sun born over and over, I ran my heedless ways. My wishes raced through the house-high hay, And nothing I cared at my sky-blue trades, But time allows in all his tuneful turnings So few and such morning songs Before the children, green and golden, Follow him out of grace. Nothing I cared in the lamb-white days, but time would take me 
up to the swallow thronged loft by the shadow of my hand. In the moon that is always rising, nor that riding to sleep I should hear him fly with the high fields and wake to the farm forever fled from the childless land. Oh, as I was young and easy in the mercy of his means, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. This poem was read by a variety of London Welsh members from across the globe, recording at home as they all self-isolate. Next up, we have Hilly James, who speaks to Phil Williams about her book, The Three Lives of Dylan Thomas, and her father Fred's relationship with Dylan throughout the years. Welcome to the latest instalment from the London Welsh Centre. I'm Phil Williams and in this episode we're going to mark International Dylan Thomas Day with a very special guest. This writer is an award-winning journalist who's the author of the only Dylan Thomas biography written by a woman. It's called The Three Lives of Dylan Thomas, written with great insight as the author's father, the artist Alfred Janes, or Fred as he's referred to in the book, was a good friend of the poets and painted his portrait throughout the three different stages of Dylan Thomas's life. We welcome Hilly Janes. How are you? Hi, I'm very well. I'm very excited to be doing this. Thank you. Um, first of all, just explain your earliest memory of Dylan Thomas as a little girl, because I think I'm right in saying that he passed away just before you were born, hadn't he? Yeah, he did pass away um, the year before I was born. So I think probably the earliest memory I have was um, probably being rather bored. We lived in the, on the Gower Peninsula in a very, very lovely house with lots of land, but it was quite isolated. Uh, and I was, um, my brother was 10 years older than me, so he wasn't, you know, as a four or five-year-old, he wasn't particularly interested in his little sister. But I can remember quite clearly one day going through a bookshelf at home and, and looking through this book of poems by... Dylan Thomas and um, beginning to read Fern Hill. I mean, I must have been older than four or five, mustn't I? I must have been about eight or something. And reading Fern Hill, which I'm sure a lot of people will know, is an amazing description, evocation of his, his childhood days, particularly in Carmarthenshire, where he used to go and stay with his mother's family uh, on a small holding. Uh, and just thinking, this is about this is about me. This this poem. This is about fields and foxes and barns and running wild uh, when you're own being very independent. And then, of course, it becomes very moving later on as he's because he's looking back at his at this, and it's very poignant um, at the end. And I don't, you know, I didn't properly understand it, but I think that it absolutely sort of captivated me. I think, and it, I think it probably still is my my favourite of all his poems. And at that point, when you're reading that for the first time, are you aware that your dad knew Dylan Thomas or have you just picked up a book off a shelf and found a poem? Yeah, I think I was probably aware because he was just sort of a bit part of the sort of cultural background and so on. And um, the friends that Dylan and my dad made in Swansea when they were very young, Vernon Watkins, the poet, and Daniel Jones, who was a very brilliant musician and composer, they were um, 
very, very much around. You know, they were our closest friends in lots of ways. So they would be, to me, they were Uncle Bernard, you know, and Uncle Uncle Dan, and they had children my own age. So those would be the kids that I would 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 play with. So he was sort of there in the background kind of thing. And under Milk Wood, I think I was introduced to as a very small child, some of it, um, so I would have known, I used to sing the songs from Under Milk Wood and so on because Dan had composed the music for them originally. How has your understanding of those songs changed from that moment when you were singing them as a little girl to the author and writer you are now where you've studied them? Um, I don't think so. The songs, the songs in Under Milk Wood are, uh, you know, very, they're very sweet and funny. Johnny Crack and Flossy Snail. Um, put their baby in a milking pail. There was one would pull it out and the other put it back and they'd smack it on the bottom. It was very Dylan sort of <laughs> silly stuff. Um, so that is, you know, what you see is what you, you get. It's Dylan being very charming about childhood and understanding childhood sing-song stuff. But I think as obviously as I've got older, I've understood a lot more of the poetry, although not all of it, I have to say. You know, some of it is very difficult to understand and I think my dad would have insisted that a lot of it was really a kind of very elaborate wordplay experimentation with sounds and patterns and we weren't meant to sort of understand it uh, in that sense uh, and and also I you know what, what I discovered as I got older was how much more there is to him than the poetry I mean we think of now of do not go gentle which has become you know one of the most read poems at funerals. Dylan is still up there whenever Radio 4 do those surveys of, you know, best loved poets. He's up there right at the top. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of other uh, poems that are very well known like that. But it was the extent of what he'd done. The short stories, which I think are brilliant, Portrait of the Artist of a Young Dog, is fantastic sort of evocation of, uh, of life as a young man growing up in Swansea. It's dark, it's funny, it's quite brooding. Um, there were the broadcasts he made. He was a fantastic broadcaster and really interesting now in these times, you know, when we're stuck at home and the BBC is trying to raise our morale. That's exactly why they hired Dylan Thomas during the Second World War to write these lovely, uplifting, funny broadcasts like um, Reminiscences of Childhood is a, is a wonderful one. Very warm, very funny. Um, uh, it's evoking a sort of a day out on the beach in in, in Swansea in the, in the summer holidays. And there are other wonderful stories like that. And there were the scripts that he wrote for the Ministry of Information during the war. He wrote scripts for those little short films that were propaganda movies, basically, at the cinema. Um, you know, he wrote 12 of those. So, you know, for somebody who died at 39... Uh, and has this reputation of being a bit of a sort of lazy, boozy, no good boy. He produced the most incredible amount of work. And, you know, his legacy still is um, very important, I think, and, and very vivid to most people. Because we should explain, he wasn't medically fit enough to go off and fight in the Second World War, was no. he? Is that how, that's how the BBC Commission came about, because he was still back at home. Yeah, exactly. So he wanted to do his bit. I think they, they all wanted to do their bit, but they were, by by nature, I think, probably pacifists. They they didn't really want to kill anybody else. Um, and Dylan just wasn't sort of up to it or up for, up for it. So he started to look for work um, 
that meant he could make a contribution, um, but didn't, you know, have to fight. And because he'd already started doing a bit of broadcasting for the BBC before that and was very uh, popular with the editors and so on, um, you know, I think they, they, they kind of snapped him up. He was very, very busy for that, for that period of time. Do you know, I was looking up some of the figures and uh, so far, to my maths, 50 different people have selected Dylan's works to accompany them on their Desert Island discs on Radio yeah, 4. Yeah, yeah, I think he is. It's incredible, it, is the isn't it? it is the most selected, the most selected work, I think. Yeah. What did your dad say to you about Dylan? And, and are you aware what Dylan thought about your dad and the kind of back and two that they would have had as mates? Yeah, well, I think um, my dad, uh, whenever the subject came up, he would just sort of go rather quiet, really. I think um, he he was very, very sad about the way that Dylan died and what happened to him. You know, they were fantastically good friends. They were friends in the way that, you know, we'd think now of maybe you make your, your friends at the sixth form in school or when you go off to uni and begin to sort of discover yourself as an adult and what you want to do in the world. And they were, they were tremendously funny together. Um, I mean, whenever Dan and Daniel Jones, my my um, my father's musician friend, and he were together, it was, you know, you wish you'd written it down. It was so funny. A lot of it was very rude and sort of a bit schoolboy, which, of course, is a little girl I absolutely love. It was hilarious. It was like willies and tits and bums and poo and all, and all that, and all that kind that. of stuff. Yeah. And with Mervyn Levy, who's sort of been very much left out of this picture, who was another a very talented artist from Swansea, went to the Royal College, uh, was an expert on L.S. Lowry, wrote loads of books. Um, he was very, very funny as well. And my dad and he were together. You know, you would be in stitches. What do you know about Dylan Thomas that we don't? Because you talked about this kind of boyer reputation that, that looms large. Give us some aspects of his character that you gleaned through the family that we wouldn't know. Well, I think one of the things that came out um, from looking at a very few things that my dad had written about him when he was asked to quite soon after he died was this thing of how hard he worked. You know, he wrote and, and rewrote over and over again. There's a lovely description of Dylan working in this these sort of very shabby cheap student digs that they lived in together uh, in the 1930s. This was when my father had come up from Swansea School of Art to the Royal Academy. He was studying there to be a professional portrait painter. You know, that was a job <laughs> that you that you trained for in those days. And Dylan was just beginning to get his work published in London and wanted desperately to get away from Swansea and come up and sort of do what we call now networking, really, and making contacts. And so um, because uh, Dylan's parents rather trusted my dad, my dad was sort of quite big and strong and sensible in a way that Dylan was neither big nor strong nor entirely sensible all the time. They kind of let Dylan go up because they thought he would be OK, you know, with Fred and, and Mervyn Levy, their, their other Swansea grammar school friend. Um, but... Dylan used to complain in this place at first. I think he found it very difficult to work because he'd just been able to work at home in his bedroom in Cumdonkin Drive um, as much as he wanted and very much supported in that by his parents. So he said, um, 
I find it difficult to concentrate in a room as messy and muddled as ours is nearly all the time. The yards around me, I see nothing but poems, 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 mashed potatoes, mashed among my stories and James's canvases. One day we shall have to wash up and then perhaps I can really begin to work. So that was, you know, that was in a letter back to Swansea soon after he arrived. But what my dad said was, um, Dylan would revise tirelessly and the room could be inundated with papers, gradually to be organised and collated and resulting frequently in a poem appearing complete and written out in his inimitable hand on a large sheet of card to be seen as well as read. Uh, and then, you know, much later when... Um, Dylan moved to Larne uh, after the Second World War. Um, you know, he had his shed, the famous shed up on the cliff there that, that you can see. Uh, and he would work in there every afternoon and in the same way. You know, the, the floor would be covered with covered with papers. And if you, you look at his early notebooks, which are um, mostly in muse, uh, museums in America or library collections in America, you know, you can see the working out, the crossing out, you know, although he was quick wicked and funny and people who met him in the pub would sort of love the banter, the actual work that went into the poetry, the writing was prodigious. And how difficult was it for all of them to be part of what I suppose we'd refer now to as an artistic community in that era? Could you make money by being an artist? Mm, no, not really. So, I mean, for example... Um, there were no commercial galleries in Swansea until the 1960s. So you couldn't sell your work there. I think there were one or two probably in Cardiff. Um, as a composer, I think it, it was difficult because then, you know, you can write, you can write a score and the score can go off and be performed or, or recorded. Um, but Dan left uh, Swansea. He went to London study music and then won very prestigious scholarships abroad and Dylan you know as I've said wanted knew he had to come up to London if he was gonna if he was gonna make it and find magazine publishers and book editors who'd be interested in his work. International Dylan Day of course very much linked to the performance in New York what was the pull of New York for Dylan? Well the pull of New York basically was uh it was money so when he the war was over, really, a lot of that work uh, dried up. You know, you know, the Ministry of Information didn't want scripts with proper gander films and so on. And, um, you know, he was still writing a lot of poetry and, and being published, but he wasn't earning shed loads of money. And he had, you know, three small children and a, and a wife to support. So when he was invited to go on these tours of the States... Um, of which visiting New York was just one stop of many, often over months and months and months. It was very attractive. You know, he was being paid a lot of money. And I think at first he really enjoyed it. You know, he would be basically going around universities a lot of the time, giving big poetry readings to students who absolutely loved him because I think poetry up until then had been considered a rather sort of dry academic subject, you know, rather serious and... The reading was a lot of sort of droning in a rather sort of sombre way. But um, Dylan, as a reader, was wonderful. And actually, I think although people think he read his own poems on all these tours, he made I think, three or four of them altogether. 
he read lots of other people's poems and he put together a sort of different selection for for every tour that he did you know he was incredibly well read and knowledgeable about English literature and um, didn't have a big ego in that sense that it's all about me and and all about my work but obviously you know he loved the acclaim and the attraction it was a bit mm. like being a rock star going on the road and having these adoring audiences you know lapping it up because even now in in modern times if somebody from wales goes and makes it big in america that's huge news was mm -hmm. he was he he was he as fated back in that era as say anthony hopkins or a catherine zeta jones would be now for what he did yeah, I think so. I think in America, yes, definitely. And and what happened while while he was there, which was fantastic for him and for all of us, was that um, a very a couple of very young women, very they were students, I think, or recent graduates, actually managed to get him into a recording studio. It was a bit tricky because he wasn't terribly reliable at keeping appointments, and record him reading um, some of his poetry, and. Then they had to sort of do the B-side <laughs> and he hadn't prepared enough material for the B-side of the, of the, you know, it was an LP, a long playing yeah. album. Uh, and he'd just written a story for um, Harper's Bazaar magazine in, in the States called, eventually it was called A Child's Christmas in Wales. So he managed to get somebody to bring a copy of the, of the manuscript down to the recording studio and that was the B-side. And of course that, the, the idea of, recording poetry like that or recording that story which is so warm and funny and evocative you know it's read at Christmas everywhere in the world every year that people you know that is what we now think of as as audiobooks as as audio you know if you if you've got audible during coronavirus and you've been listening to lots of stuff somebody like Dylan was hugely important on making that idea that literature could be enjoyed um you know through listening to it through a device, he was an absolute trailblazer. Mm. Because the, the what we would call the meter and the, the pace is very important to Dylan. I get the sense as a reader. Is that fair? Yeah, abs absolutely it was. And again, you know, he would have understood sort of every aspect of the sort of technical, the, the craft side of that. Uh, and interestingly, um, I don't speak Welsh myself, unfortunately, but uh, I think a lot of part, per, poets who do write in Welsh say that uh, the kind of rhythms of the of the Welsh language of Welsh poetry writing traditionally you can hear them very much in in some of his work. And I mean, certainly, if you listen to something like Undermilk Wood, his ear for dialogue was incredible. You know, he was a real listener. You can't write things like Undermilk Wood unless you are um, you know, a top-notch eavesdropper and you're listening to what people are saying all the time, which is why he liked pubs and cafes, because he just liked to listen to, you know, what people were chatting about. And he was brilliant at, at reproducing that. It's what I think is one of the reasons why Undermut would work so well, because you can just hear it. Uh, and I, I remember somebody um, for, the, for the South Bank show, the ITV Arts programme, mm. coming to interview my dad about, Dylan, which never went down very well, actually, he never really enjoyed doing that very much, saying, well, and where, you know, where did he get the ideas for from uh, the characters in Undermilk Wood? You know, this was so creative. And my dad sort of just looked at him and said, well, no, he didn't make them up. You know, that's how <laughs> that's how people talk down there. 
Why was your dad not keen on doing those interviews? Well, I think um, what happened sort of latterly was that, um, you know, people would want to come and make programmes or interview my, my dad and they'd say they wanted to talk about his work, but sometimes they didn't. They wanted to talk about Dylan Thomas. And, you know, my dad was an artist in his own right all his life. Um, and, you know, I think anybody can understand that's slightly galling when somebody wants to talk about your friend and not you. And I remember one time, this is when um, we'd moved up to London long ago and it was, uh, I think, in about the 1980s and somebody, uh, you know, was interested in my dad's work and wanted to come to the house and uh, buy some stuff. So they came, you know, and had a nice lunch and all that kind of thing. And there was a um, a portrait that he'd done. It wasn't a, sol- a portrait of anybody well-known. He was very interested at that time in the relationship between hands and faces. So if you asked him, well, who is that person? So no, it's not anybody I know. You know, it's I'm interested in the relationship between hands and faces. And anyway, this this guy was interested in buying this painting of this portrait of a man with his sort of, I think his head resting on his hands and saying... Um, Oh, you know, has has it got a title? And my father said, "Not Dylan Thomas." <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> the um, at the beginning, when we talked about the the three stages of Dylan's life that your dad was able to capture, mm-hmm. that the last portrait I want to say was nineteen fifty three, just before that last fatal trip to New York. What can you tell us about that session and that final portrait? Yeah, that was actually the penultimate one because the last one, the third one, was done after he died. It was posthumous. Right. The 53 portrait was... I'm not, I'm not quite sure why he did that at the time. I couldn't find any record of it. But um, I think he knew then that Dylan was in a really bad way. He was in a very bad way. Uh, and he was going off on another tour of this, of America mm. Uh, and everybody thought by then this was not a good idea because they were absolutely punishing. He obviously physically wasn't in good shape, you know. Um, remember, there was still rationing here. You know, we were in post-war Britain, but that hadn't happened in the States. So, the, you know, there was masses of food and drink and cigarettes, everything that uh, Dylan loved and and overindulged. And so whether he felt he had, my dad felt he had to sort of do it, you know, because the time was running out. Uh, I'm not sure, but anyway, if that's what he did think, he was right, because Dylan never came back from New York that time, and my father had to finish it from um, photographs and so on. But I think because he'd done this earlier portrait uh, in 1934 when they were students in London, and my dad was a very, very slow worker at that time. I'll read some of the things out that Dylan said about them. very funny, taking the <laughs> proverbial out of him. Um, but he said to my mother, um, I know every, every, every aspect of his face, you know, every feature, every, every line. So I think to a certain extent he would have been painting from, um, painting from memory. And actually there was an account that I read that my aunt, Ethel Ross, who was a, lived with us and was a friend of Dylan's too, said that when he died, that people came to the house to look at this portrait and, and they would cry. I mean, it was almost like it was a sort of, you know, religious icon mm-hmm. by that stage mm-hmm. to some mm-hmm. people. That's remarkable, isn't it? It's hard to conceive of that now. And, I mean, there's a very funny story too about that. That painting is now, that portrait 
is now at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Austin in Texas, which has a huge holding of manuscripts and stuff to relate to Dylan. And um, a representative came to the house in Gower and, and asked my father to sell this painting. And he really didn't want to sell it, I don't think, but he probably, you know, he needed the money. So in the end, he agreed to sell it. And this the house in, in Gower was up quite a long drive with dry stone walls that my father had sort of very lovingly restored by hand himself. And um, they bought a, you know, a box for the portrait, but it was too big. So they had to run around the house and get all my mother's magazines, her copies of Good Housekeeping and Vogue and stuff and scrunch up all the, all the pages to make a sort of padding. That was all they had. Uh, and then, um, and, and my mum said, my dad said it looked like a sort of wreath, a wonderful sort of wreath of flowers around his face because, you know, they were colour magazines. Mm. And then, um, anyway, they managed to get the thing in the van and it goes off down the drive, which is quite narrow, and it knocks um, a corner off one of these flipping dry stone walls. And my dad said, goodbye, Dylan, trouble till the last. <laughs> So how would you characterise the relationship between Dylan and Fred? Oh, I think it was very fond. I mean, very sort of loving in a way and full of admiration, you know, um, for each other's work. I'll see if I can, um, I can find some bits. So my father's work at the time was very slow and very painstaking and very detailed. Uh, and he'd have these fish and stuff you know, lobsters in the flat, you know, for days, I think, on end. It must have been pretty smelly anyway. Um, so this was Dylan um, remembering very sadly, and he made the in the first television programme he ever made, I think he made about two television broadcasts, was made in Cardiff in 1953, and the BBC in Cardiff got them all together, my father, Dylan, Dan, and Vernon Watkins, um, you know, to talk about their work and so on. And, and very sadly, nobody's ever managed to sort of find a... A copy of it but um anyway uh there is a script i think or a script of part of it which bernard watkins kept so um he's recalling uh dylan's recalling these times in this flat two of us had beards thomas said of his flatmates and i grew one too sparse and ginger and limp like a depressed marmalade cat with the mange i don't know how, what happened to it Either it fell off or was blown off or it just grew in. Mrs Parsnip, that's the landlady, was always boiling cabbages downstairs, cabbages and lights and maybe mice. And one of us was painting mackerel all the time, day in, day out, the same mackerel too, until they used to get up and walk around the room just like real life models. <laughs> Uh, and he described the portrait then that um, Dad painted in 1934, as, uh, which is now in the National Museum of Wales in Cardiff, as um, a frog in his salad days. That was how Dylan uh, described himself. Or that, that dewy goblin portrait frog goggling at me out of the past, he described it later. Uh, and then he used to relentlessly... Uh, take the mickey out of dad for working so slowly so um, again this was later on um when you know they're all dispersed during the war they're all doing different things um my father spent very little time in swansea at all during the war uh so there's some little 
comments in letters because that was the only way they could keep in touch with each other. My my father was uh, a terrible letter writer. He hated writing uh, letters. So at one point, Dylan asked another friend, um, what are our old Swansea friends doing? Is Fred still cross-gartering fruit and faces, drilling, objecting? I don't hear from them ever. Life and letter, of course. So the idea was that, you know, if there was a book of dad's letters, it would be called The Life and Letter of Alfred James because there'd only be <laughs> one of them, probably. Uh, and then, um, again, I'd like to write to him, even if he won't answer. I'll enjoy seeing his war pictures, the veins of a leaf that blew from a shelled tree, the crisscrossed on the head of a spent bullet. He should do widespread camouflage work and make Oldham look like the back of a herring. <laughs> But again, there's a real nugget in there at the beginning where you said that you'll put, I'll write to him even if I don't get a reply. That shows the fondness, yeah, doesn't it, that yeah, was amongst absolutely. them. Yeah, and I think, you know, although, um, you know, Dylan was a pretty peripatetic character for forever, I think, you know, very early on, my dad said, um, you know, that he, he, I think it was very difficult to paint a portrait of Dylan because he wouldn't sit still for very long. Uh, and my dad said, um, while Dylan was sitting writing on these on these sheets of paper, and the paper was all over the place as I've described. Whereas I was glued to my my dad didn't have an easel; he used a chair as an easel. They didn't have any furniture really in this flat at all. Right. Um, whereas I was glued to my easel come chair, experimenting away day after day. Dylan would disappear for days, perhaps weeks on end. On one occasion, he went out to get a haircut, and the next time I saw him was in Swansea. <laughs> and where would he go to? Well, he, you know, he he did have a girlfriend at the time. Um, you know, he might have gone out and sort of stayed with other people or with his girlfriend, or he might have gone back to Swansea for, for, for all Dad knew, because Dad would only go back in the holidays. You know, he was a student at the yeah. academy. He would go, He would go back in the back in the holidays you know he was uh you know a lot of the time Dylan didn't really have anywhere to live he didn't have a lot of money he couldn't afford rent um and if he was in London he was very much sort of relying on um you know what we call sofa surfing these days you know people putting him up and and I think a lot of the reputation for womanizing and sex even his wife Catelyn said this was actually what he just wanted was a bed for the night and a cuddle and somebody to make him some breakfast, you know, and, and then he'd be off. It wasn't that he was some great Lothario. So he wasn't necessarily a naughty boy? Well, I think he was a naughty boy, <laughs> but, but but it was sort of, you know, necessity was a, was a mother of invention kind of thing. Um, yeah. I found a, a quote from... Uh, Seamus Heaney talking about Dylan's legacy that I wanted to put to you just to see what your thoughts are on this. He gave a, an Oxford lecture on Dylan Thomas and mm. he opened by saying, Dylan Thomas is now as much a case history as a chapter in the history of poetry, querying how Thomas the poet is one of his forgotten attributes. What do you think of that? Do you think that his some elements of Dylan's armoury have been forgotten? Yeah, I think so. I think it's changed recently. You know, the, the year of his centenary, which was the year my book, The Three Lives of Dylan Thomas, came out, did an awful lot to um, re-establish his literary credentials. And his granddaughter, Hannah Ellis, has worked, you know, very hard 
to do that. But it's, um, you know, his reputation was definitely traduced after after he died. There was a very complicated relationship with with him in Wales, I think, because Wales at that time in the 50s, you know, it was still quite a religious place. Mm-hmm. Chapel, not drinking, all that kind of thing. Uh, he didn't speak Welsh. So as there was a sort of resurgence in nationalism in the, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s, that meant sort of culturally he wasn't really um, part of that resurgence or or the kind of, you know, brilliant, fantastic, wonderful effort that's been put by the Welsh government into getting Welsh back on the on the la- on the cultural landscape and learning it. I think that's fantastic. But you can see that somebody like Dylan doesn't fit into that culturally. Um, and I think... You know, because he's so many things to different people, to some people, you know, he is a very serious poet to scholars of, of poetry. Um, to other people, he's the rock and roll guy, you know, the, the the drinker, the boozer, you know, that side of him appeals to a certain type of older man, actually. Um, to me, he's, I think, you know, he's, on a personal level, he reconnects me very much with my with my childhood in Gowan, with Wales and Swansea and my family and so on, apart from, you know, the enormous respect I have for him as a writer. Um, But, you know, try and convince anybody. I mean, it's one reason I wanted to write the book was because I wanted to see if I could sort of change this reputation a bit, you know, move the dial and not not deny what gave him that reputation say well hang on a minute there was a whole other side you know to this and how could somebody who wrote so much and was so well loved and still is so long after he died you know just have been a a, a lechy boozy drunken welshman you know that doesn't stack up but it's very hard to do i mean the idea that dylan died after drinking straight 18 straight whiskies mm-hmm. in the white horse hotel in new york you know as far as Everybody who's really looked into this can tell it's just not true. But it's not what people want to believe. The people don't want to believe that. Um, you know, he was very, very ill on that last trip to New York. It turned out he had pneumonia. He had to give this reading of Undermilk Wood for the first time. They'd sold a thousand tickets. The sh- you know, he had a promoter. The show had to go on. Um, and he was in a lot of pain and not very well. And they gave him morphine which is the last thing that you give to somebody who's got respiratory problems because it suppresses your breathing. And yeah, he did go to the White Horse and he did have some whiskey, but I think I worked it out in terms of what we'd uh, think of as units. It was like half a bottle of wine or something. Not 18 whiskeys. No, not according to the bartender at the time because he drank one particular type of whiskey. So the bartender knew exactly sort of how much of it had gone down. Mm. But people that people, you know, it's much, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I completely understand why people want to believe that, but it is frustrating. And I think it to introduce somebody's reputation like that who's so talented. And I think for Wales is such an important cultural asset. He's mm. so important to them culturally. And I think in a way that's still not really understood or, or appreciated. It happens a lot though, doesn't it? Through Sadly. myth and legend. It's almost that the, the part that elevates to legendary status is the part that can also be founded in untruth. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, people love the idea of artists as being um, mm. bohemian uh, in the sense of, you know, 
not not just sort of living for their art, but you know, living in the in the kind of circumstances that my dad and um, Dylan lived in in the nineteen thirties. But uh, people who are serious writers and artists and musicians, they work very hard. My father worked, painted every day, seven days a week. He had a fantastic routine. Everything revolved around that routine and his work till the day he died, more or less. I can think of no finer way to conclude than with a, a Dylan Thomas poem. And Hilly's very kindly agreed to read one for you that she's chosen. And what, what have you gone for, Hilly? And explain why you've chosen this one before we launch into it. Um, well, I've chosen this one because um, I wanted to read something that I think is very... Uh, beautiful, very simple, and quite quite complicated when you start to look at the, the language and the patterns in it. Um, and it's also not as well known as, as things like um, Do Not Go Gentle, Fern Hill, or Death Shall Have No Dominion. But I think it's very beautiful. It's also about writing and about why writers write, and particularly about why um, So what's it wrote. called? It's called In My Craft or Sullen Art. In my craft or sullen art, exercised in the still night when only the moon rages and the lovers lie abed with all their griefs in their arms. I labour by singing light, not for ambition or bread or the strut and trade of charms on the ivory stages, but for the common wages of their most secret heart. Not for the proud man apart from the raging moon I write on these spindrift pages, nor for the towering dead with their nightingales and psalms, but for the lovers, their arms around the griefs of the ages, who pay no praise or wages, nor heed my craft or art. So lovely. And for the lovers of Dylan Thomas, I hope you've really enjoyed this chat that we've had with Hilly. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, Hilly. And uh, just for me, the sense of the primary evidence that you're able to share with us of Dylan's life and career is, is outstanding. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been uh, a real privilege. And, uh, you know, if people have enjoyed it, one of the best ways to get into Dylan Thomas is, is to listen. There's loads of recordings out. There's lots of wonderful stuff on the BBC website. So, you know, tomorrow, Dylan Thomas Day... Uh, enjoy. Hilly James, thank you so much. The book, if you want to peruse that, is called The Three Lives of Dylan Thomas. Nothing next week here, but keep and peel. Stay alert, as the Prime Minister would have you do. And there'll be more from the London Welsh Centre here very soon. Bye-bye. And before we leave you, we have another poem to share, recorded as a video and up on our social media channels of the London Welsh Centre, members reciting Do Not Go Gentle. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. A rage, a rage against the dying of the lights. Though wise men at their end know that dark is right, because their words had fought no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, 
rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late, they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight Blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. Thank you for listening, and to all our members from across the globe, Happy Dylan Day. <laughs>